When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As the storm is now subsiding, and the horizon becoming serene, it is pleasant to consider the phenomenon with attention. We can no longer say there's nothing new under the sun, for this whole chapter in the history of man is new. The great extent of our republic is new. Its sparse habitation is new. The mighty wave of public opinion which has rolled over it is new. But the most pleasing novelty is its so quickly subsiding over such an extent of surface to its true level again. The order and good sense displayed in this recovery from delusion and in the momentous crisis which lately arose really bespeak a strength of character in our nation which augurs well for the duration of our republic. And I am much better satisfied now of its stability than I was before it was tried. Though his path to the presidency wasn't quite as smooth as he would have wished, when Thomas Jefferson took the oath of office on March 4, 1801, there was reason for optimism amongst Democratic Republicans. Before long, the new president would even receive praise from unexpected corners of the Federalist camp. It's easy to see why, in hindsight, Jefferson would, in his later years, refer to his election victory and assuming the presidency as, quote, the Revolution of 1800. But when we look at the details of his first days in office, the picture is not quite as rosy as the third president would later remember. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Jacob Collier from the podcast on Germany for providing the intro quote for this episode. We've already seen in the podcast that populations of immigrants of German heritage have had a sizable impact on American history and... Just a spoiler alert, that's only going to increase as we move forward in the narrative. To that end, if you'd like to know more about the history that forms the backbone of German-American culture, I hope you'll head over to the podcast on Germany after you finish this episode. It can be found online at podcastongermany, all one word, dot com. I'll also post a link on the source notes page for this episode. We covered the dramatic election of 1800 in episode 2.24, but as a quick recap, Jefferson and his running mate Aaron Burr both earned 73 electoral votes, and, as the Constitution did not specify whether the votes cast were for president or vice president, the election went to the House of Representatives to decide. Due to political intrigues involving the Federalists, who thought they might be able to retain some control with Burr as president, the vote would remain deadlocked for nearly a week until, on the 36th ballot cast on Tuesday, February 17th, Jefferson was finally chosen as president, with Burr then becoming vice president. With the delay in the decision, that meant that Jefferson had two weeks until his inauguration to get prepared to assume office. Though he had maintained as much distance from the House deliberations as he could, and allowed proxies, including the Democratic-Republican leader in the House, Albert Gallatin, to work on his behalf, Jefferson was at least present in Washington, D.C. when the official word came. He had been there since November 27th, 
and it's difficult to imagine that he hadn't spent a good portion of that time while lodging at the Conrad and McMahon boarding house, consulting with Democratic Republicans to determine who should join his administration and what his priorities should be upon taking office. Indeed, his choice of lodgings provided him ample opportunity, as his fellow lodgers included members of the House and Senate from states up and down the eastern seaboard. By contrast, his running mate-turned-opponent Aaron Burr was still in Albany, New York, when he learned that he would be taking the oath as vice president. One item that I didn't discuss much in episode 2.24, as it was more relevant to our discussion of the Jefferson presidency, was Burr's role in the election intrigue. As discussed in the earlier episode, Burr had ridden to Jefferson on December 23rd as he learned of the tie vote, offering to remove himself from consideration in exchange for, quote, any active station in Jefferson's administration. Jefferson, however, did not acknowledge this letter and let events play out. One has to wonder whether, upon receiving no response from Jefferson, Burr played any role in attempts to put him into the presidency over his running mate. Shortly after he wrote his letter to Jefferson, Burr wrote another letter that his biographer David Stewart asserts was, quote, intended for public consumption, in which he addressed the letters that he had received since news of the tie vote became public knowledge. These letters that he had received, wrote Burr, were written with, quote, a degree of jealousy and distrust and irritation by no means pleasing or flattering. While he was willing to defer to Jefferson as being at the top of the ticket, Burr would not agree to a pledge to resign if he were chosen to be president, as some had suggested. He felt this demand was, quote, unnecessary, unreasonable, and impertinent. The fact that Burr did not remove his name from consideration or do more to secure Jefferson's unquestioned election has been cited by many since as proof that Burr was eager to become president. He even acknowledged in private letters that the Federalists, quote, did have it in their power to make their election. At this, though, I do have to offer up my two cents. Grains of salt at the ready, dear friends. This is Aaron Burr we're talking about. One of the reasons he was on the ticket to begin with is that Burr had helped Democratic Republicans to secure victories at the polls, even when the Federalists seemed to be in the ascendancy. It would have been quite easy for him to throw himself into the mix and apply pressure to help his cause. Burr biographer Milton Lomax notes a letter from Albert Gallatin on February 3rd that has been lost, but from Burr's reply on the 12th and a second-hand account from the Journal of a New York Merchant regarding the letter, it seems that Gallatin had invited Burr to Washington to help to resolve the issue. Lomax suggests that Gallatin may have been hedging his bets with this letter and appealing to Burr, knowing that he would likely be named Secretary of the Treasury no matter who ultimately came out on top, Jefferson or Burr. But given what we know of Gallatin and the situation, there was much uncertainty about whether Federalists would just delay the election long enough to name their own successor to Adams on March 4th when his term ended by having the presidency devolve on a Federalist president pro tem of the Senate or the Federalist Speaker of the House. Lomas does mention this plot, and I'm inclined to believe that Gallatin just wanted all hands on deck as a way to keep the Democratic Republicans solidified no matter what happened. As it happened, though, Burr's only daughter, Theodosia, had just married on February 2nd, and they had made plans for Burr to travel to Washington with Theodosia and her new husband, Joseph Alston, as they traveled south to return to Alston's plantation, Oaks, in South Carolina. Burr's devotion to his daughter is well documented, which provides a plausible personal reason for his delay. However, another possible reason comes in answering the question, was this really a missed opportunity? 
In his study of Burr's life, Lomas points to Burr's letter to Gallatin of February 12th as providing clues that Burr may have been, quote, unknowingly externalizing his own timidity, his failure to act when a quick trip to Washington might have secured him the prize. Indeed, on the third day of the House balloting, Representative William Cooper, Federalist from New York, asserted that, quote, had Burr done anything for himself, he would long ere this have been president. Could he have, though? Looking at the numbers, Burr would have needed to have won over three more state delegations, which meant either breaking the deadlock in the Maryland or Vermont delegations or winning over some states that were going for Jefferson. It's possible that pressure on the one Federalist delegate from Maryland who was voting for Jefferson would have brought that state over. There was also the possibility of James Bayard's attempted deal with Samuel Smith, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, going through. Bayard said that he had been authorized to offer Smith the position of Secretary of the Navy if he changed his vote to Burr. Vermont, though, there was no way that one would shift, as the one holdup there was our old friend Matthew Lyon, the Lion of Vermont. As we saw in episodes 2.8 and 2.11, there was no way he'd support Federalists on any idea except for another round of congressional deathmatch. I'm sure his fire tongs were at the ready. Thus, we'll have to go into the Jefferson column to try to find two other states to flip. The delegations from Georgia, Kentucky, and Tennessee were so small and pro-Jefferson that there wasn't likely any support there. Jefferson's home state of Virginia could also be marked off the list. Pennsylvania was a 9-4 vote for Jefferson in the delegation, so that one wasn't too likely to flip. That leaves New Jersey, New York, and North Carolina. The problem with all three, however, is that they were split strictly on party lines, which meant that Burr and his supporters would have to convince Democratic Republicans to break ranks and go against Jefferson. While not completely impossible, I also think we need to consider the possibility that the Federalist congressmen, in desperation, were grasping at straws, and that perhaps Burr himself realized that. While not removing himself from consideration if circumstances changed are as the parlance would be in later election cycles, he, quote, made himself available. Burr also did not actively seek out the presidency and made enough statements that he could point to as evidence of his loyalty to Jefferson. Hindsight, though, would see this as a miscalculation. As noted by Lomask, quote, had he announced prior to the House election that he would not accept the presidency, he, i.e. Burr, would have silenced forever the charge that he had intrigued against Jefferson, a charge that would resurface more than once in the future. Both the Federalists in their support for Burr and the Democratic Republicans in their assessment saw in Burr's refusal to make a declaration that he would not accept the presidency a signal that he was, quote-unquote, available. And after the election was decided, Jefferson and his supporters, some of whom had already been wary of the man from New York, would hold Burr at arm's length moving forward. Still, Burr would make his way to Washington starting on February 19th and would arrive in time to take his oath of office at the first presidential inauguration in the new capital city. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
Jefferson's main work in the two weeks leading up to the inauguration would be on crafting his inaugural address. After the tumultuous election, it was more important than ever that he craft words which would set his new administration off on a good footing. At 10 a.m. on Wednesday, March 4, 1801, quote, The company of Washington Artillery and the company of Alexandria Riflemen paraded in front of Conrad and McMunn's, and there was a discharge of artillery as the president-elect began his walk to the U.S. Capitol building. He was accompanied on this walk by some friends. Gone were the coaches and the ceremonial swords of the Washington and Adams inaugurations. Instead, the plain-dressed man from Virginia walked to the north wing of the Capitol, quote, the only part of the projected Capitol that was yet erected, and greeted those who had already gathered. As noted in episode 2.24, his predecessor Adams had already departed to head back home, as had the outgoing Speaker of the House, Theodore Sedgwick. There were persons aplenty, though, as the Senate chamber was crowded with around 300 individuals who had come to witness Jefferson's inauguration. Burr was sworn in as vice president at 10 o'clock by Senator James Hillhouse, Federalist from Connecticut, who had been chosen to preside over the Senate after President-elect Jefferson had announced his intention, quote, to retire from the chair of the Senate in the lead-up to his inauguration. Shortly before noon, on Inauguration Day, Jefferson entered the chamber with members of Adams's cabinet. Burr would give Jefferson his place on the dais and, as Lomas would note, quote, most members of the audience in the Senate chamber that day would live long enough to have reason to recall with feeling the tableau that now presented itself. Jefferson seated at the center of the platform, flanked by Aaron Burr on his right, and by his cousin, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall on his left. Indeed, with hindsight, it can be looked at as a greater symbol of enemies gathering to ensure the continuance of government than Washington, Adams, and Jefferson at the inaugural ceremony four years prior in Philadelphia. We'll get to the tensions between these three men all in due time. For the moment, though, let's get caught up with Marshall. When we last saw him in episode 2.24, Marshall had been unanimously confirmed by the Senate on January 27th, and he took his oath of office as the fourth Chief Justice on February 4th. As noted by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, the Virginian would, in assuming this new role, take on the burden of leading a branch of the government that had yet to be well-defined. From Smith, quote, When he took the post, he, i.e. Marshall, assumed leadership of a court that enjoyed little prestige and even less authority. The Supreme Court of the United States at the time was a court of law, not a constitutional court. It was established to hear law cases not expound the Constitution. Its jurisdiction was expressly limited, and its appellate role was determined by statute. Both Congress and the executive could lay greater claim to constitutional finality than the court. It didn't help that Marshall was the fourth person to hold this position on the court in the last five and a half years. As we discussed in the Washington series, John Jay had resigned in June 1795 to assume the governorship of New York. His successor, John Rutledge, was appointed in a recess appointment and would be rejected by the Senate after only a few months on the court after rumors of mental instability coupled with unwise intrusions into political matters torpedoed his official nomination. His successor, Oliver Ellsworth, had served a few years longer, but after serving in the Second Peace Commission to France, had fallen ill and sent in his resignation from Europe. Thus, not only was the court diminished, but the role of Chief Justice had begun, as described by Smith, quote, to resemble a revolving door. As a reflection of its lack of prestige, 
When the government moved to the new capital city, they had to figure out exactly where the Supreme Court would hold its sessions because no building had been designated for that purpose. During the planning process, a committee in the House of Representatives in 1796 had recommended, quote, a building for the judiciary. But in the midst of all of the other preparations, no one bothered to draft plans and no funds were allocated for that purpose. Indeed, Marshall himself had been involved in some of the planning when Adams had deferred overseeing the construction of the federal city to him. In early December 1800, the commissioners of the District of Columbia had recommended to Marshall, quote, that a committee room in the Capitol building be set aside temporarily for the court. It would take until January 20th, 1801, before Speaker of the House Theodore Sedgwick introduced a bill before that body to allow the Supreme Court to use a room in the U.S. Capitol for its sessions. The Senate would quickly concur, and the court would be assigned to Committee Room 2, a room that it would use until 1808. Benjamin Latrobe, the architect of the Capitol, described this room as, quote, a half-finished committee room meanly furnished and very inconvenient. Smith noted that, at this point in its history, quote, the court had no library, no office space, no clerks or secretaries, and the official reporter, Alexander J. Dallas, a distinguished member of the Pennsylvania Bar, had resigned rather than make the trip to Washington. Initially, there was no bench for the justices, and they sat at individual desks placed on a raised platform. Even these meager quarters were not reserved for the Supreme Court exclusively, but had to be shared with the district and circuit courts of the District of Columbia. While I don't want to give too much away, it's going to be a very, very, very long time before we talk about the construction of a separate Supreme Court building. I'm talking about over a century in terms of very long time. Despite his role as a leader in the Federalist Party, Marshall, upon assuming his position as Chief Justice, would in his attire adopt more of a Jeffersonian stance. While his fellow justices, quote, were attired either in the traditional scarlet and ermine of the King's Bench or their individual academic gowns, Marshall, quote, wore a plain black robe in the Republican fashion of the judges of the Virginia Court of Appeals. As there was little business before the court and its session ended only a few days after the new Chief Justice took up his seat, Marshall had continued on as acting Secretary of State during the remainder of Adams's term, and the incoming president asked him to retain the post until March 5th to ensure a smooth transition. Speaking of, this sounds like as good of a time as any to turn our attention back to Jefferson as he readied himself to deliver his address and be sworn in by Chief Justice Marshall. Jefferson, like George Washington, did not have a loud voice, and despite the attention that this speech would receive in later histories, few of those on hand in the Senate chamber would actually hear him deliver the address. They could, however, read it, as Jefferson had provided a copy to Samuel Harrison Smith of the National Intelligencer to include in an inaugural edition to be distributed that day. The main theme of Jefferson's address would be reconciliation and national unity. Though he and the Democratic Republicans had claimed a clear electoral mandate in the recent elections, Jefferson reminded his fellow citizens that, quote, Though the will of the majority is in all cases to prevail, that will, to be rightful, must be reasonable. That the minority possess their equal rights, which equal law must protect, and to violate would be oppression. Let us then, fellow citizens, unite with one heart and one mind. 
Let us restore to social intercourse that harmony and affection without which liberty and even life itself are but dreary things. His most famous line from this address, which will be repeated in print and remarks for generations after, would be, of course, quote, We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Now, I should note that the two secondary sources that I consulted for the full text of the speech print this line differently. In one, Republicans and Federalists are in uppercase. In the other, they're in lowercase. Thus, I went to the Library of Congress catalog, which has scanned copies of Jefferson's original reading copy, a link to which will be in the source notes page for this episode, and confirmed, as I suspected, that Jefferson himself wrote the two words in lowercase. Now, you may ask why this is important, but scholars have pointed out that there is a distinction here. As noted by Malone, besides just the fact that Jefferson often did not capitalize, we now know through his other writings from the time that, quote, it is evidence that he regarded the hardcore of the Federalist, uppercase Federalist, that is, as unyielding and irreconcilable. Thus, he was not necessarily offering an olive branch to them, as later interpretations have come to adopt the statement as representing. Rather, again from alone, quote, He could only have meant that nearly all Americans favored a republic rather than a monarchy and accepted the federal, lowercase f, system of government, as contrasted with consolidation on the one hand and full state sovereignty on the other. This, Malone notes, was consistent with his statements on the matter years prior. Rather than speaking to the politics of the present, Jefferson was invoking a shared ideological heritage as a foundation upon which a national future could be built. Ever one for construction, he was ready to get to work as, quote, the responsible leader of a united people. Surprisingly, Alexander Hamilton, a few weeks later, would speak approvingly of Jefferson's inaugural address as, quote, a candid retraction of past misapprehensions and a pledge to the community that the new president will not lend himself to dangerous innovations, but in essential points will tread in the steps of his predecessors. It may have been a backhanded compliment as it still attacked Jefferson's past record, but compared to attacks from Hamilton and other arch-federalists in the past, One has to imagine that his longtime rival going this far in a show of approbation came as a surprise to the new president. In his assessment of the inaugural address, Hamilton recognized that Jefferson's transition to the presidency meant that he would no longer be in the role of leader of the opposition, but rather would be the one with the authority to set policy and deal with the consequences of those decisions. And Hamilton was confident that, in his new role, Jefferson would begin to understand the reasoning behind some of the policy decisions that he had criticized for so long. Though there would be some criticism from the high Federalist camp, by and large, existing primary sources reacting to the speech and of the transition of power were full of praise. Even Margaret Bayard Smith, though coming from a Federalist family, upon her marriage to Samuel Harrison Smith in September 1800, as discussed in episode 2.23, had instantly taken to Mr. Jefferson and would write to her sister-in-law the day of the inauguration that, quote, the changes of administration, which in every government and in every age have most generally been epochs of confusion, villainy, and bloodshed, in this our happy country, take place without any species of distraction or disorder. This day has one of the most amiable and worthy men taken that seat 
to which he was called by the voice of his country. As was the Jefferson Way, though this would prove to be the first inauguration in which the Marine Band played, a tradition which has continued on to the present day, 2019 as of this recording, that was the only bit of pomp and circumstance that he would allow. After the ceremony was over, Jefferson would walk back to Conrad and McMunn's where he would remain for the next couple of weeks and work to put his new administration together. In the early days, the operational apparatus around Jefferson was scant. Though he had invited Captain Meriwether Lewis to serve as his private secretary, Lewis had not accepted by the time Jefferson assumed the presidency, and the third president did not even have a messenger of his own, but instead had to rely on one from the State Department, provided by John Marshall. Two of his cabinet members would be in place rather quickly. In the short special session called for the inauguration, the Senate on March 5th confirmed the nominations of James Madison as Secretary of State, Henry Dearborn as Secretary of War, and Levi Lincoln as Attorney General. Madison was still in Virginia making preparations for the move to Washington, but as Dearborn and Lincoln were present in the capital city, they were able to assume their posts that day. As neither of the latter men have been mentioned thus far in the podcast, it may be worthwhile to take a moment to make their acquaintance. Levi Lincoln was born in Hingham, Massachusetts, which is just to the east of Abigail Adams' hometown of Weymouth, and not far at all from Quincy. Indeed, he was only a few years younger than Abigail and graduated from Harvard just before the Revolution. In addition to his legal practice in Worcester, Lincoln served in a number of public roles during the Revolution. As the nation transitioned into the new government under the Constitution, Lincoln would become a prominent member of the Democratic-Republican faction in Massachusetts and was elected to the State House of Representatives in 1796, then to the State Senate the following two years, before finally being elected to fill a vacancy in Congress. Lincoln assumed his post on December 15, 1800, and was thus in the U.S. House when the election crisis came to that body. Because he had proven himself to Jefferson to be quite capable and could provide great insight into the politics of New England, Jefferson asked him to serve as his attorney general. As a further show of his confidence in Lincoln's abilities, he asked Lincoln on March 5th to serve as Secretary of State temporarily until the permanent successor to that post could arrive in the capital city. More on that in a minute. The second person to assume a role in the Jefferson administration was Henry Dearborn, also of Massachusetts, though he hailed from Monmouth, which is now a part of Maine. Unlike his colleague Lincoln, Dearborn's public service during the Revolution had been in the military. He had taken part in the Battle of Bunker Hill and the invasion of Canada. He joined General Washington's staff as a deputy quartermaster general in 1781 and had been on hand for the siege of Yorktown. After the war and his move to Monmouth, Dearborn had been chosen as a brigadier general of militia in 1787 and rose to the rank of major general in 1789. Dearborn's politics tended to be against the Washington administration, and as the 1790s went on and Federalists continued in power, he decided to throw his hat into the ring in a different area of public service. Dearborn ran as a candidate for the U.S. House and won, serving from March 1793 until March 1797. As soon as the House of Representatives resolved the election controversy, Jefferson wrote to Dearborn to inform him that, quote, On a review of the characters in the different states proper for the different departments, I've had no hesitation in considering you as the person to whom it would be most advantageous to the public to confide the Department of War. Dearborn had come to the notice of Jefferson and Madison due to his opposition to the Jay Treaty, as well as his support for, quote, reductions in the military establishment. 
Another soon-to-be member of Jefferson's administration would write of Jefferson's first two cabinet members around the time that they were assuming their post and describe them as follows. Quote, General Dearborn is a man of strong sense, great practical information on all the subjects connected with his department, and what is called a man of business. He is not, I believe, a scholar, but I think he will make the best Secretary of War we have had as yet. Mr. Lincoln is a good lawyer, a fine scholar, a man of great distinction and sound judgment, and of the mildest and most amiable manners. He has never, I should think from his manners, been out of his own state or mixed much with the world except on business. Both are men of 1776, sound and decided Republicans. Both are men of the strictest integrity, and both, but Mr. L. principally, have a great weight of character to the eastward with both parties. Now, it was a foregone conclusion that James Madison would be Jefferson's Secretary of State. Indeed, Jefferson had urged him in numerous letters leading up to the inauguration to come to Washington either before or shortly thereafter his inauguration. However, in addition to some health problems both he and his father were experiencing, as well as, quote, the impropriety of appearing to seek office, Madison demurred from being present when Jefferson assumed the presidency. Still, this did not stop Jefferson from submitting his name to the Senate on March 5th, with his nomination being confirmed that day. As soon as he arrived, Madison could get to work. The larger problem, though, was what to do about the other cabinet post. As was expected, Jefferson's choice for Secretary of the Treasury was without a doubt Albert Gallatin. However, there was concern that, though he was already in Washington for the inauguration and could easily have assumed office on the 5th like Dearborn and Lincoln, Gallatin might face more opposition than his other nominations submitted to the special session. Indeed, even the calling of the special session by his predecessor Adams had been controversial. Though Adams was only following the precedent that Washington had set during their transition, with the change in party control and the remoteness of the new capital, some of the new Democratic-Republican senators from the West would not be able to make it to the District of Columbia in time to take their seats for the special session. Thus, the Federalists would have a greater influence over the confirmation process than they would have had otherwise, and might just seek to embarrass the new president by rejecting Gallatin. To avoid that, the excuse was used that Gallatin had to move his family to the city before he could assume his post, and Jefferson would bring him into the cabinet with a recess appointment. This did not keep Gallatin from attending informal meetings with Jefferson, Dearborn, and Lincoln about administrative affairs before heading back to his home in western Pennsylvania to collect his family. Due to the importance of the Treasury Department, Jefferson could not leave the secretary post vacant. Thus, a couple of weeks before assuming office, he met with Adams's Treasury Secretary Samuel Dexter and asked him to remain in office until Gallatin's return. As Jefferson wrote to the secretary in a letter the day after their meeting, quote, I can with candor declare that the imperfect opportunities I've had of acquaintance with you have inspired an entire esteem for your character. Gallatin likewise would write to his wife on March 5th that Dexter had acted, quote, with great civility at a time where there was much animosity in the Federalist camp about the turn of events. Choosing the head of the Navy Department would also prove to be an issue for the new president. Jefferson had actually come to a decision pretty early on, indeed before the election was settled, as to who he wanted in the post. He wrote to Chancellor Robert R. Livingston of New York on December 14, 1800, that, quote, 
The part which circumstances constrain me to propose to you is the secretaryship of the Navy. These circumstances cannot be explained by letter. Republicanism is so rare in those parts which possess nautical skill that I cannot find it allied there to the other qualifications. Though you are not nautical by profession, yet your residence and your mechanical science qualify you as well as a gentleman can possibly be and sufficiently to enable you to choose under agents perfectly qualified and to superintend their conduct. Come forward then, my dear sir, and give us the aid of your talents and the weight of your character towards the new establishment of republicanism. Yeah, if the you're not really right for the post, but you're better than anyone else note of this doesn't strike a tone to rouse you to action, dear listener, apparently Livingston was of the same mind as he turned down the post. As noted by Dumas Malone, quote, After the settlement with France, reduction of the Navy was likely in any case. Who would really want to take on the task of being head of a department that was about to be cut back in terms of its significance? Seeing that he still had some work to do to find someone to take up the post, Jefferson turned to Adams' Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddard. Now, Stoddard had already written to Jefferson on February 18th that, quote, My health and my private affairs have for some time required more of my attention than the duties of my office would permit me to give to them, and I have therefore been anxious to relinquish my official situation, which would have been done before this time had Mr. Adams been re-elected, for in that event he could have found no difficulty in supplying my vacancy. He requested that Jefferson, quote, provide a successor for me so that I may be relieved from its duties in the course of the next month. Jefferson only wrote a short note back on the 21st, warning Stoddard that, quote, at this moment, it is not in my power to say anything certain on the subject of time for his replacement to be in place, and asserting that, quote, I wish support from no quarter longer than my actions candidly scanned shall merit it. Though Jefferson included a little flattery in the letter, it reads quite different from the one to Dexter. In my humble opinion, grains of salt at the ready, everyone, This can be read in one of two ways. One, Jefferson thought Stoddard already had a foot out the door and was not likely to accept the offer to stay until he could fill the post. Two, Jefferson was already planning a reduction of the Navy, so maybe he didn't see the office or the department as being that important anyway. Whatever the case may be, Stoddard did agree to remain at the Navy Department. As he lived in Georgetown, it wasn't much of an imposition, certainly not as large of one as it would have been, had the capital still been in Philadelphia, and thus gave Jefferson time to figure out who might be willing to serve as Stoddard's successor. Thus, it would be that on March 8, 1801, the new president would assemble his cabinet as it was. Secretary of War Dearborn, Attorney General Lincoln, and his soon-to-be Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin at Conrad and McMunn's boarding house to discuss the primary issue on his desk, appointments to positions in the federal government. The first hurdle in addressing this, though, was that most of the positions in the government were already filled by Federalists. That was going to be a problem. And we will get into the weeds of the patronage question next time in an episode I'd like to call A Deadly Revenge. Until then, I'd like to thank Jacob again for providing the intro quote for this episode. Be sure to check out his work over at Podcast on Germany. You can find the link to his podcast as well as the sources used for this episode on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B, 
R-R-Y.com. I'll also link to his podcast on my social media, which you can find on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, all one word. If you'd like to shoot me an email, you can send it on to presidenciespodcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.